The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host, Sean Mobley. Today is the second in a two-part series with Tiesel Muir Harmony, curator of the Apollo program at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, and a returning guest here on the show. She's giving a public program here at the Museum of Flight on June 3rd, which is just two days away from now if you're listening on the release date, sharing information about the political history of the Apollo moon landings. She and I sat down in advance of the program to go into some depth on the context of that larger political history, and I'd encourage you to listen to the previous episode, part one of the conversation, before listening to this one, but if you have a working knowledge of the space race, you should be okay. In this episode, she talks about the classic 1962 Seattle World's Fair and its place in Apollo political history, how domestic and international perceptions of the Apollo program varied quite significantly, and what role museums have in helping people deconstruct their understanding of history when new research challenges long-held ideas previously accepted as fact. In Seattle here, the 1962 World's Fair is iconic. It's how we get the Space Needle, which if you talk about Seattle, everyone thinks of the Space Needle. We get the monorail, a lot of our downtown landmarks. And and the name Space Needle tells you (laughs) that there was a lot of excitement around space at the time of the fair. So so what role did this 1962 World's Fair play in in the political history of Apollo and the space program? So this World's Fair was very forward-looking. It was looking at the future, not not the past. It was about the future. And a big part of that future was space exploration. And there was a huge space, space exhibit. And um, this is the same year that John Glenn orbited the Earth. He was the, the first American to orbit the Earth. And this was the, the moment when it seemed like the U.S. was finally catching up to the Soviet Union. So there had been suborbital flights, uh, but Glenn was the first person to orbit the Earth, first American to orbit the Earth. So um, he visited the fair in May that year. It was a huge success, and his spacecraft was then sent around this world, on around the world, um, on this diplomatic exhibit tour, and it was um, called the Fourth Orbit. And I talk about that a lot in my book. Uh, so Glenn orbited the Earth three times in the spacecraft, and then when it went on this uh, global tour. It was the fourth time it traveled around the world, much slower, but um, sort of a funny name for it. But they made sure that that tour was relatively quick because they wanted to to get it back to the United States so it could be put on exhibit in Seattle at the fair. And it was hugely successful, a very big crowd draw. I've heard reports that you could actually touch it, uh, which as a curator sort of uh, makes my heart flutter. But um, that's what I've heard is that you could actually go right up to it and touch it. And this is something that I always think it's important to remind people that Sputnik was in 1957. This was 1962. Space flight was so brand new at this moment. The first human space flight with Yuri Gagarin was 1961. And so um, this was the first opportunity many people had to see something like this in person. And it really made space flight 
come alive because on the spacecraft, you can see the evidence of spaceflight, especially atmospheric reentry. And so um, it was a, an important um, opportunity for many people to sort of encounter the space age in a kind of um, down to earth <laughs> kind of way. And um, yeah, so that was the end of this, this diplomatic tour. And in countries around the world, it drew hundreds of thousands of people. And um, that diplomatic tour is actually what started this project for me because I was doing a, a separate project that looked at a U.S. observatory in Japan, and I came across these documents on this exhibit in in Tokyo of the Friendship Seven spacecraft, and hundreds of thousands of people waited in line for hours upon hours upon hours just to walk by it. It was um, an unprecedented exhibit. Uh, they people, their lines were so long that they actually snaked up nine flights of stairs across the roof of the building and down again just to walk by it. And um, But in Seattle, it held a lot of attention as well and became just a big focal point of the fair. But um, I also love looking into some history of the fair and, and things like, um, there's a lot of space-themed things. This was supposed to demonstrate uh, sort of America as future-facing um, but there's a century 21. Exactly. Um, like even the, you can find menus online from, uh, from the fair and there's like cocktails named after space flight and stuff like that. So it was, it was just in the air at the time as well. And a movie film starring Elvis. <laughs> oh yes, that's right. And that's one of, I don't know. Do you remember the very end of that movie? He signs up to be part of NASA. A uh, really case <laughs> in point. <laughs> can't even get it out of it in an Elvis film <laughs> I think it's maybe is it roused about I'm not sure I know that they filmed some scenes in the space needle and stuff like that so it's an Elvis film but I highly recommend it um I especially because the end he actually goes to the fair and and one of the like the climax of the film is that he like, gets his life together and he signs up for NASA and it's it's done in the same way that you you do like um, you'd sign up to be in the military. It's it's not you know, <laughs> go down to the station and sign up. To be in NASA. You know, like at a t you know, like at a table, like he just signs his name on it. It's not how it works, but um, it's uh, I think it says a, a lot about that that moment. What 1962 was like, um, this excitement about the future and how much NASA and spaceflight really embodied these kind of visions of what the future was going to be. Jumping ahead to. 68 you know there's that that phrase that apollo 8 saved 68 and and it was a year of of civil rights unrest uh protests that turned violent that were from members of a political party who were dissatisfied with the results of an election uh, you even quoted a, a government report that said uh, that people were questioning whether the quote vaunted american system might be on the verge of decay and disintegration and I mean, to be honest, uh, you could probably find some of the more apocalyptic commentators today saying that uh, about things. But but how did Apollo 8, how was that mission crafted to counter and quell a lot of what was happening in <laughs> everywhere in that particular year? And, and did it work? One of the important aspects of Apollo 8 was the decision to carry film equipment on board and to broadcast the mission in different stages of the mission to the world. Um, I, the astronauts orbited the moon on Christmas Eve. Uh, so there was some of that, you know, that some of that timing, it wasn't, it wasn't for international relations reasons, but it was very powerful and moving to people. And this was the first time humans had traveled to the moon, which 
I think we could take it for granted a bit now, but it's what an extraordinary accomplishment. I mean, it's uh, the first time in the history of civilization for in human history more broadly that, that humans left the earth and traveled to another celestial body, just absolutely extraordinary. And um, uh, it, it was the kind of accomplishment that um, stopped people from what they were doing, brought them together. People wanted to follow that mission. And so you had the largest audience in history at that point um, following the flight and um, the, the, commander of the mission, Frank Borman, was just given a simple instruction and he was told that more people will be listening to your voice than have listened to any human voice in history say something appropriate. Um, and they gave the astronauts a lot of latitude when it came to what they could say. And this was also tied to this idea that you know, American is an open, liberal, democratic society. We, we value freedom and the astronauts should be free to articulate um, whatever it is that they want to, that they should um, express whatever it is that comes to their mind, and then it shouldn't be propaganda, it shouldn't be composed for them. And so the commander of the mission was given this instruction, you know, <laughs> say something inappropriate. And um, he went he went to a friend for guidance, who was a science advisor of the USIA, who then went to um, his friends for help, and they eventually settled on this idea to read from Genesis. And, and um, the idea was that it would be, it would have the kind of weight that was appropriate for that mission, as well as the timing of that mission on Christmas Eve, but that it would be tied to more religions. So not just Christianity, but that it would be a reference to, to more world religions. Um, so it'd be more inclusive for that reason. And in general, they um, that was interpreted really positively. There was also the image of Earthrise that was taken and that was disseminated very broadly around the world. Lyndon Johnson decided to send that to foreign leaders as a diplomatic gift along with a letter when he was leaving office. And he talked a lot about how spaceflight was bringing the world closer together and it was... Uh, making it clear to us that it was necessary to pursue peace. And there was a lot of language about we're all on this earth together. We're all, you know, we're all linked. We're all brothers. There was also this wonderful poem by Archibald MacLeish that, that really articulated that beautifully. And so that became such a wonderful counter narrative to all the divisions of, of 1968. So Really, 1968 could be characterized as a year with just remarkable divisions on all sorts. When it came to, um, you know, you have the war in, in Vietnam, but you also have civil rights struggles. You have uh, Vietnam anti-Vietnam war protests, divisions between young and old. Um, assassinations. Assassinations, exactly. I mean, you can go on and on and on. It was it was a very difficult year, and Apollo 8 was this unifying moment, and there was a lot of there was, well, the opportunity to follow it together was unifying, but then also some of the imagery surrounding it. So that Earthrise image and the, the language that was used really emphasized and amplified the sense of, of unity and um, brotherhood. And I think that resonated very strongly with people, especially at that moment. Did that excitement stick around? I mean, we have Apollo 11, uh, but then if in the film version of you know, the Apollo 13 movie, at least they kind of the dramatized situation there is that just two two missions later it's old news. Uh, so did did it continue to pack a political punch? It is hard to follow on the first of something, and so the fact that 
Apollo 11 was the first time humans landed on the moon, it's it's not a surprise that that would draw more attention than anything else. Um, and it's hard to follow that up. And uh, as far as U.S. foreign relations is concerned, uh, public diplomats recognize that and they saw that this is, and this popularity is going to wane over time. So it's our job to try to buoy it as much as possible and take advantage of it while we can. So there wasn't this idea that it would, you know, last forever. And, but I should mention that um, the additional Apollo missions tended to be more popular internationally than they were domestically. And so, although within the United States, there was um, the, the interest in the missions really declined quite sharply. Uh, internationally, there was, there was quite a lot of enthusiasm for each of the additional missions. And um, it also reflects, though, I think, general public opinion within the United States. So throughout the 1960s, they took public opinion polls and um, more than half of Americans thought that Project Apollo was not how the government should be spending its resources. And it was only around the moon landing that more than half of Americans thought that Apollo 11 was um, a good national priority. So in general, within the United States, it wasn't so popular. Internationally, it was much more popular and it had a larger impact on um, on the way people um spoke at least about American priorities and leadership and was interpreted as a, a positive thing that the United States was doing. Well, and then you get into Apollo Soyuz and, and all, all the international missions that, that followed, which is a whole nother discussion. <laughs> you mentioned the Friendship 7 being touched. I, I noticed that too. There's actually a photo in the book of, I think, President Kennedy touching the capsule. And so I just had in my mind, I'm like, I want to take that image and doctorate so that the person right over his shoulder is like excuse me sir please don't touch the artifacts i i, I, I can you see evidence of of the handling today on the capsule there at the national air and space museum is there a section rubbed off or is it pretty well reserved preserved well it's hard to say because i think you know going re-entry going through the earth's atmosphere uh really yeah i guess you could say rubbed <laughs> off it does a number on you but <laughs> you know like oily hands did to it I will say, though, during this project, um, I interviewed a lot of people involved in the Apollo program and public diplomacy. And and one of them was the, um, the head exhibit designer for the American Pavilion at the Osaka World's Fair. So this was World's Fair in, in Japan in 1970, and it had a command module from Apollo 8. And he was telling me that it was positioned so that people could reach out and touch it. And some people would break off little pieces of the heat shield as souvenirs. And he, he was saying that, you know, like they were really connecting with it. And I was thinking, oh, <laughs> and, I knew interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> and I can see that it is important to have a connection with these objects. But um, I, I, you know, I really, I really hope that uh, most of that heat shield was, was just left as it was. Well, if listeners want a, a whole 40 minute podcast about the importance of uh, leaving artifacts alone, listen to uh, the oldest, and it's called the oldest episode. The The episode is called oldest. I shouldn't have named these episodes biggest, smallest, largest, oldest. It makes it really hard <laughs> to talk about. Listen to the smallest episode. What does that mean? We talk all about that with an archaeologist. But the Friendship 7, you know, maybe you don't have to touch it to be connected with it, but I do encourage people when, when they visit the National Air and Space Museum, uh, to to stop and look at that capsule because at the very least you'll see how tiny it was and marvel at what a small person John John Glenn must have been in order to fit in that thing 
and how bold the decision to get inside that spacecraft was. I, I, I know I would not do it, <laughs> especially when I see it in person. I just think, wow, what, what did it take to, to, you know, enter that spacecraft and on, when it was on top of a rocket, um, it's, uh, it's quite something. And I think seeing it in person really drives that home and, and also really drives home that this was so brand new. They were just doing this for the first time. And um, you can really get that sense when you look at the artifact in person. What responsibility do you have as, as a curator at the National Air and Space Museum, right? Working with exhibits. And what responsibility do other museums like, like the Museum of Flight have or, or any aerospace museum to helping the public uh, analyze their understanding of the space race. Uh, I mean, your book is one of several to come out recently, and that really helps us understand a lot more of the nuance of the space race than what's presented in in your in your high school textbook. Uh, Kennedy, for example, is often portrayed as 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 this space visionary, but but you and a couple other authors have pretty convincingly demonstrated that to him, space exploration was a political issue, just like any other and he pursued it as much as it helped him politically so so what do we do as museum people with this kind of new information and interpretation uh, of course acknowledging that the average visitor isn't going to read the sign we put out anyway <laughs> well as new scholarship comes out i think it's so important to incorporate these findings into exhibits when possible and and to demonstrate a more nuanced story with something like the Apollo program, learning about what motivated Kennedy, why he proposed to send humans to the moon, um, tells us a lot about how large scale scientific and engineering projects like Apollo get done. And um, that that sending humans to the moon was not funded simply for science and, and engineering. And I think that there's a lesson to be learned from that and that um, multiple, there are multiple motivations for pursuing scientific programs. That's okay. Um, there can be multiple payoffs and benefits as well. So we learned a lot about our solar system and the moon, but we also served American foreign relations interests at the same time. And so I think finding ways to present that information in, in an exhibit helps people more clear, clearly appreciate how and why things get done, how and why things get funded. You know, what what sent us to the moon in 1969? It was important to see that Kennedy's expectation of what the impact of a moon landing would be on the minds of men everywhere who are attempting to make a determination of which road to take. And he says that really explicitly, but um, so often that that line gets sort of rushed past uh, and and Kennedy's goal for Apollo wasn't just landing humans on the moon. It was impacting the minds of men everywhere. That was an important part of the mission statement. And I, and I think emphasizing that in an exhibit is important to um, presenting the, the full story to visitors. And at the National Air and Space Museum, we've had this opportunity to completely redo our lunar exploration exhibit with our renovation. And when the museum first opened in 1976, the exhibit on Apollo was designed at a moment when most people knew what Apollo was. And um, so there was less context. And then there was also at that time, less hmm. scholarship on, yeah. on the, um, the program as well. And so. Um, so it'd be like doing a COVID exhibit. Next exactly, exactly. So, you know, you most everyone who was going to, yeah, most everyone who was going to come through knew, you know, watched it themselves. I mean, this was the most watched event in human history. And, 
And so you didn't have to say, you know, Apollo is this. And I think today not everyone uh, knows all the, the nuance of the history or that there was more than one lunar landing mission, for instance. And so there's a lot of work to be done because you have to get you have to get all the, the bones out too, right? You have to say, you know, there were this many missions, it cost this much, it involved this many people. But it's also, um, I think, really important stories to tell about, you know, why things happen uh, the way they they did and the impact that they had and that spin-offs aren't just technological spin-offs and we don't just invest in science and technology for new technology. I mean there's there's so many different reasons to invest in something like that. And um so hopefully it's a uh, I shouldn't say hopefully it is a richer story that we are able to tell today. And part of that also is there's so much new great scholarship on the history of space exploration the political history, uh, which is of interest to me, but also when it comes to, you know, who participated in Project Apollo. And so we have wonderful histories about um, the women who are contributing to the program, minorities and their experiences contributing to the program. Also, the relationship between spaceflight and civil rights has become a topic that historians and other scholars have focused on. So we have more material to work with right now as well. And so that's it's a really exciting uh, opportunity as a curator at a museum working on an exhibit because you can draw on all the, the wealth of this like wonderful, robust, rich scholarship um, to tell a more nuanced story. Yeah, and if listeners are interested in diving into some of those other stories, we've covered uh, some stories of women in the space program and LGBT individuals in the space program uh, in previous episodes, and I'll make sure to include some links. I mean, I, I think I can speak for museum people around the world that were very excited for the renovation at NASA to be completed here in a couple years. Uh, I, I hope that the pandemic didn't slow things down too much, but uh, we'll be patient. But uh, <laughs> the renderings are fantastic. As we're recording this, Apollo of an astronaut, Michael Collins, and of course, museum person, Michael Collins too, uh, passed away very recently. Uh, can you share some, some stories and recollections about him? Sure. So I, I feel so privileged to have known him. I met him a number of years ago. Um, I was able to interview him for my book project and then also get to know him a bit more. Once I started at the Smithsonian, he, he kept up a close relationship with the museum and was a big supporter of space museums and space flight in general. And I just had so many wonderful experiences with him over the years. And one of the aspects of his career that people might be less familiar with is his role at the State Department. And so after the first lunar landing, the the astronauts were sent around the world on this diplomatic tour that we talked about. And once they returned to Washington, they had dinner with President Nixon. And Nixon was, this is the story at least, Nixon was saying, you know, what do you what do you want to do next? You know, what are your plans? And Michael Collins, he he could have stayed in the astronaut corps and he could have probably gone to the moon himself and walked on on the lunar surface. Um, but he talked about one of the things that interested him was diplomacy. And it had been an interest of his from a young age. His, actually, his mother wanted him um, to go to become a diplomat at some point. He talks about it as a child and um, really values. Not usually what I think about parents <laughs> prompting their children to do. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he came from a military family. And there's, a I think, a really great sense of service and national service. And I think his mom saw the important role that diplomacy played in national service and thought maybe that would be um, the way that he could serve. And 
I think also that experience traveling the world after his mission, and one of my favorite stories is he talks about they all expected people around the world to say, congratulations, you did it, or America did it. But what they heard instead was, we did it. And there's this sense that this was a global accomplishment, and that really moved him. And so in that conversation with Nixon, he talked about how he might want to do some work um, in American diplomacy. And supposedly Nixon called up the Secretary of State on the phone and said, you know, give Michael Collins a job. <laughs> I, think <it's, laughs> I think it wasn't that simple. I like that story. but um, but a good uh, story. Yeah, so Michael Collins did end up leaving NASA and joining the State Department as Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs, but then he left that position to become the director of the National Air and Space Museum. But um, I I like pointing that out because it was, um, I think, uh, part of his contributions and also his sensitivity, awareness, and appreciation for the important um, diplomatic role that spaceflight could play for the United States. Well, thank you so much for your time, uh, Tiesel. We look forward to your public program here in just two days from the dropping of this episode. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I want to give particular thanks to those of you who support the podcast with financial gifts to the museum. You keep this program and other educational programs going. You can become a donor by going to museumofflight.org slash podcast and clicking the yellow donate button. As I said in the intro, if you're listening to this episode on its release date, Tiesel will be giving even more information on this topic in her public program on Thursday, June And this is a virtual public program, so you can tune in and ask questions from anywhere in the world. A link to more information is in the show notes. And if you missed the program, if you're listening to this after the fact, it is recorded. You can find it on the Museum of Flight's YouTube page. Tiesel previously appeared on the podcast a few years ago, talking about the Apollo 11 International Diplomatic Tour that we referenced a few times in this episode, And I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes, along with links to the various other episodes I referenced. Make sure you take time to visit the Apollo exhibit here at the Museum of Flight. We have a reproduction of the Mercury capsule, like Friendship 7, hanging above you as you're in that exhibit, as though it's in orbit around the museum, around the exhibit. And of course, if you're in D.C., stop by the National Air and Space Museum to see the real Friendship 7, and keep your eyes on their website for updates on their exciting renovations. And as of this recording, the Museum of Flight, and the Smithsonian for that matter, continue to operate under COVID-19 guidelines, so make sure you check our website, museumofflight.org, before visiting to get the most up-to-date information. I'm sure the Smithsonian folks would say the same. If you like what you heard, please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. You can contact the show at podcast.museumofflight.org. Until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks.